It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. I'm here to remind you to take the Slate survey. It will be open through April 1st, and your answers help us make a better Slate. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com survey. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 19th, 2020, the How Long Will It Last edition. I'm David Plotz of my house. I'm in my daughter's bedroom. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of Yale and the New York Times Magazine from her home in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. I feel like that is a dangerous title you chose because we're going to be asking that question for a long time, perhaps. But I am also ready to ask that question, so I, I approve of it. Asked but not answered. John Dickerson exactly. of CBS's 60 Minutes joins us from his house in Manhattan, Gotham, New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. It's nice to see everybody. I'm going to just focus on the positive. We usually record, one of us at least is in, usually it's me actually, I can't see you. Yeah. And now I can see you all. I can even see Jocelyn. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that's a good thing. Uh, that is, that's, that's the only good thing. The only good thing at all. On today's GabFest, the most unsettling week of our lives, a whole new way of living. We'll talk about what we can expect over the next weeks and months of the pandemic with Dr. Amesh Adalja, who's a scholar at Johns Hopkins, an expert on pandemic preparedness, emerging infectious diseases, and biosecurity, so he knows what he's talking about. Then, can the economy be saved from the depression, the recession, the catastrophe that's coming? Can the federal government do enough to stop the disaster? Neil Irwin of the New York Times will be here to talk to us about that. And then we'll talk to the author of a new book about one of the worst natural disasters in American history and how people recovered from it. I'm really looking forward to that segment. The book has a lot to tell us about where we are now. And the author is John Mualem. And the author is John Mualem also. Plus, the name of the book is? We'll talk. We'll get to that. We'll get well, to it. Well, but people right now are reaching for a pen as the they name of the book rush is, across their kitchen this to write is, down the name of the book. The name of the book is This Is Chance. This Is Chance. The Shaking of an All-American City. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and we'll have a Slate Plus segment. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> are you, you're not sure about any of those last two things. This is an unusual GabFest uh, in that we're going to have guests for all of our segments today. And our first guest probably knows more about what we're going to be talking about uh, than almost anyone around. Dr. Amish Adalja is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. He focuses on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, biosecurity. Dr. Adalja, thank you for joining us. So it's Thursday morning as we're taping. What is it that we as a society should be looking out for in the coming weeks that will signal how this pandemic is moving, whether we're doing enough, whether social distancing is working, whether the health system can withstand it. What are the signals for us? So the biggest signal is going to be ICU bed capacity and hearing about 
crunches at ICUs around the country, seeing if they are having difficulties obtaining ventilators for patients, seeing what they're doing to manage ICU bed space. That, that's what our, our big indicator is, because that's going to kind of be the canary in the coal mine, because that's really what we're doing all of this for, is to try and preserve hospital capacity for the most sick individuals that are going to consume hospital resources. And that, that I think, is, is the best marker. You're also going to look at, for example, crowding in emergency departments. Are there a lot of people there versus what you would expect at this time of the year? And, and then the rest is, is <clears throat> looking at the number of deaths, the number of nursing homes that are affected, and then the number of cases I would look at, but I don't think I would put as much stock in it because we have a lot of issues with testing and not everybody's going to need to be tested. So it's always going to be an underestimate, but you can expect to see that ramp up. But it's really the markers for hospital stress that we're going to have to look at to see if this is, uh, if, if this is working and how bad it's going to be. Could we talk about the relationship between testing and social distancing? Um when I read about other countries, um, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, that have had more success in containing and seeming to stifle the spread of coronavirus, it seems like massive testing and things like fever checks to make sure that you're keeping people who have symptoms separate have been really important. It seems like we kind of missed a moment to do those kinds of interventions in the United States because we had so little testing. Are we now, with our social distancing, buying ourselves some time so that we can get more testing into place and perhaps down the line try those kinds of strategies? So I, I do agree that I think a lot of the window has been was uh, was missed because we not only did we not have testing, but the protocols that were out there that were pushed out were actually discouraging testing of people with mild symptoms. And we know that mild symptoms don't really mean anything in terms of contagiousness. They can still spread it. And if you tell someone you've got mild symptoms, go about your day, they're not going to change their behavior and, and self-isolate. So I do think that what we needed to do, if you were going to do this appropriately, would be to aggressively find the cases and I test them and isolate them. Or if you couldn't test them, say, we presume that you have this. So just stay, stay inside for 14 days and, and limit your contacts. That's what you needed to do. So t testing makes it very easy because if you give someone a test result, they're going to actually take that action. But in the absence of that, you can still tell people what to do and to, to protect the community from this virus. But that wasn't something that was done. And I, I think now, now that testing is ramped up, we, it may be too late in many, in many instances to do this because we've got so many undocumented chains of transmission all over the United States because we don't know who has it, who doesn't have it, where, where it is. And you're almost left in the position with these mild cases. You have to say you, you probably do have it, so you should stay home for 14 days. For someone who studies pandemic preparedness, I didn't necessarily think that this is how we were, where our issue would be. We knew we had issues with hospital capacity, but we didn't think the diagnostic capacity would be would be something so important and that would kind of sink the response in, in this way. And it's still baffling to me why the guidance in the very beginning was, was not to test mild patients and only to look at people that have been to China in the last 14 days when we know that this had been spreading since mid-November. So Dr. Adalja, I have a broad question and a, and a narrow one. The narrow one is as we're testing and making determinations based on the spread, um, could it be possible that we're getting numbers that are coming in of people who've already had it that are um, sort of the, now that we're just it's just a factor of the fact we can test more people that we now are having cases go up, that it doesn't tell us necessarily anything about the success or failure of social distancing because we're still catching up to sort of scoping the problem in the first case. And then the that so that's the specific um, question of how to read the actual testing result numbers as they come in. And then the broader question is, 
relative to the narrative of this so far, it seems like the U.S. response has been woefully behind. Are we in a new category? Are we still woefully behind? Or have we caught up a little bit on where we should be and now we're just simply behind? Or give us a sense of where we are in the race right now. So for the first question, I do think you're going to see cases go up and that might be partly catching up just because we're now running all these tests. The backlogs are going down. So we could, so that it's not really reflective of actual spread. It's actually reflective of, <clears throat> of test, test catching up and finding the cases that were sitting uh, and not being able to be tested and more people coming to access those tests now that we've got drive-through clinics and have commercial labs and kits out there everywhere. So I wouldn't look at that number and, and get alarmed. I know there was a 40% increase overnight, which probably got a lot of people nervous, but that's getting us to capturing some of these undocumented infections that we have uh, all throughout this country. W when it comes to, are we on the, have we caught up to the world and responding? I would say that we are pretty much on par with the rest of the world. But the problem is that some of our tools have not been unable to be used because we lost that opportunity because we weren't aggressively finding these cases when they came in, uh, maybe back in January and isolating them. There's an argument whether or not that that's so South Korea did that. And now they were, you know, touted as this big success, but they're having some more cases come back up now. So it's unclear how effective or how sustainable that approach is right now. It, it's a very, we're kind of in uncharted waters a lot with this virus because it's it's something that spreads so efficiently. And when you look back at viruses like this and just going back to 2009 H1N1, there was no idea of this being containable because we knew it was flu and we knew it was going to spread. And from the start, there's been this idea of containment of this type of virus. And to me, it's been very, I, I think, puzzling that we were treating this differently in terms of how we approached it from a containment perspective versus something like influenza, because it, you know, there's comparisons, there's, there's analogies that are good with influenza and analogies that are bad, but one that is good is the way that it spreads. And when these cases in 2009 appeared in Mexico, there was no idea of trying to contain it. It wasn't something that was thought to be possible. And that poses a problem because this has a higher case fatality ratio than, than, than the 2009 virus. And we're just in this crunch because our hospitals do not have the capacity to deal with that many sick patients. So it's, it's now something that I'm completely, um, puzzled over of how, to, how to come out of this solution, because it doesn't seem like there's any good solution right now. And, and all the answers kind of lead to, to bad, bad outcomes for something. So it's kind of like this is like the ethics of emergencies where there's not really a good way to get out of this that I can think of. Can you explain that a little more like what the different bad outcomes are as you're sort of, it sounds like a kind of pick your poison scenario? Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what I've, I've over the last 24 hours, I've started to, to get a little bit, uh, less optimistic than I was about how, how we get out of this. And and I tended to be someone who thought that the U.S., and I still do think the U.S. is the best prepared country for pandemics, but I think that it's increasingly becoming this choice of either you have to social distance and disrupt the economy and disrupt people's lives and livelihoods that, you know, there's a real people that are now not being able to work or feed their families or be able to do go about their, their daily life and, and companies and businesses are going to shutter people are being laid off, that's real cost. And you're going to see that have long-term consequences, schools being closed for, for time that, that are going to, that are going to have a cost to them, not just an economic cost, but a societal, psychological, and, and even a health cost eventually, if people are out of work and unable to uh, provide for themselves. And then on the other hand, you have a virus that can maybe has a case fatality ratio of about 1%, which is clustered mostly in high-risk groups. But the fact is, so many people are going to get sick that there's not enough hospital capacity and our hospitals are going to grind to a halt and be basically in crisis mode. And we're going to have to be thinking about rationing equipment and, and people are going to die from that. So I think that, that's what that's kind of where we are. 
you know, the only hope is, if, hope is if the case fatality ratio isn't that high and we still have a lot of uncertainty about the case fatality ratio. So we're using 1% as an upper bound. Maybe it's lower. Maybe we're spared. Maybe we won't have an Italian type of experience. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. So I think that's the bad outcomes is, is, you know, you basically disrupt the entire economy and people's livelihoods and lives. And you have to do that for some time for this to work. Modeling studies say it might have to be done for, for months and months until there's a vaccine available. Or you have to deal with the fact that our hospitals are not, don't have capacity and we're going to have hospitals in a, in a big mess. And I don't know what the, the right solution is or how to balance that or where the inflection point is where, you make, where, where the costs of social distancing are, be, are too high for the benefits of them. That's going to be a major societal policy decision that needs to be made. And I don't think there's an easy answer to it. Dr. Adaljo, which parts of science and medicine do you think can accelerate to reduce this impact. We know from World War II, certainly when when the entire economy was turned towards war production, they were able to do things that they were not able to do uh, in regular life. Is the same thing possible in science and medicine or which, which parts of it might there be the ability to accelerate or to scale that we just think, oh, we, could, we can't do it because, because we've never done it before? The only, the, the way I would see the, the ability to scale is going to be on the capacity side. So that might mean building new hospitals. There's lots of hospitals that have shuttered all around the country, trying to open them back up. Maybe they're not full service hospitals, but they're places where you can do some, you can render some type of care. Uh, I know that there are the, the Navy military uh, hospital boats are going to be coming to, to New York. At least one of them is coming to New York. That type of way to offload the healthcare system of patients. That's what I think is the the lowest hanging fruit is to try and increase capacity by creating more hospital beds so that we don't have that problem. Uh, at the same time, we may have a problem with ventilators, meaning that there's not enough ventilators for all the people that might require mechanical ventilation. And there are efforts to try and buy more ventilators and increase capacity. I heard that the automakers are are looking to see if they can have the if they can learn how to make those ventilators. And I know Rolls Royce in, in England is trying to make uh, ventilators now. So there are ways to to do it that way. Um, it's just going to take some time to scale to get get ready. But I do think that's one one solution is to increase the capacity so that you can say, okay, we're going to let the world resume, but we're going we now have more hospital capacity. So we'll be able to absorb the hit of the individuals who are creating demands on our hospital system without disrupting the function of the hospital. Because remember, people are still going to have heart attacks, strokes, psychiatric emergencies, other infectious diseases, all that stuff is going to be happening at the background. And that's what people I think sometimes lose sight of when everybody's focus so much on this pandemic that they're going to be long-term health needs. And eventually those types of things are going to start to suffer. I mean, they're already suffering. We're already hearing about research labs in, in universities shutting down all other research except for related to this virus or, or what's called critical research. And that's going to have long-term consequences. So I, I don't, it's, you know, as somebody who studies pandemics and has always talked about the importance of putting everything, you know, what a cascading impact the pandemic can have. Um, this is really, um, it's it's really surreal to see it all happening, um, all the stuff that we write in papers uh, happening. And there's not clear, easy ways out of this because we don't have a miraculous vaccine before the credits roll like in the movie Contagion. Dr. Adalja, what is the, the, the quality of information we know about the testing versus non-testing, how many people might actually have it, but other pieces of information that you and, and other people thinking about this uh, are looking at, how how dirty is that information? Do you feel like... Um, there's what you don't know, but then there's the quality of what you do know. And then <clears throat> added to that, what questions should we be asking public officials to find out if they've really got a handle on what's going on? 
Well, they have to have insight into what hospital, what, what's going on in hospitals. We have to kind of have a dashboard to understand what's going on in our ICUs across the country and knowing when they're hitting stress, because that's really the, like I said, the, that's the main indicator we're looking at. And right now we're not hearing about over the people that are uh, over capacity. We're hearing they're nearing capacity at certain hospitals in certain parts of the country, not everywhere. I know that many country, many, many states don't have any cases in their ICUs now, um, but there, there are some that do have a lot. I think that's what that's what officials need to be looking at. It's something that you have to think about looking forward. That we have this idea, just the way you would look during a during a hurricane or something like that, that's going to be there for some time, trying to get that kind of situational awareness. I do also think it's important to look at the data on data coming out of other countries on on what's going on in Italy, specifically Italy, because that's really what a lot of this worst case scenario is being derived from is the Italian experience, trying to understand how replicable that is in the United States. And I think, and, and trying to get that data and drill into it very, in a very detailed manner, because there are obviously differences in the demographics in Italy in terms of the, the age of the population, uh, smoking status, all of that stuff uh, needs to be looked at. And I do think the case fatality ratio is going to be really important because a lot of the panic and a lot of the fear is based on the need for hospital resources. And we need to see exactly what, what that is to try and right-size the outbreak response. The last issue is personal protective equipment. We need to have a good idea of how many ventilators we have, how many masks, what the issues are for that. That also is something that we need to have an ongoing data stream for. So Dr. Adalja, maintaining social distance is going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to be incredibly difficult because it has such a huge economic cost, and it's incredibly difficult because humans are social creatures, and we're we are accustomed to dealing with each other and to touch and to human connection and all of that. If you had to to and I and I, I know you're you're one person and one doctor. Which are the most important parts of that for for our listeners? Uh, what, if you were going to say, here are the things you really, really need to focus on and here are the things that are that are less important because because people just are going to be unable to maintain that level of disconnection and and lack of activity for for a very long time. You know, it's definitely one of the hardest things I think that we're going to have to cope with. And people ask me this question a lot and I try to nuance it as best as I can. That People have to look at their own life and decide what's essential and what's not essential. There clearly are obvious things that we know are going to be dangerous and small groups are, are likely are, are likely going to be fine um, as long as you make sure that no one is sick there and you make it easy for people to social distance or not, not, not just social distance, but to um, be able to practice good hand hygiene and things like that at your, at whatever event it is. I do. And then there's lots of things like, you know, going out in the park or going outside. That's not, that's not going to be an issue, even where you have a lockdown and and a shelter in place order in San Francisco, people are still going out and doing things. It's not like don't hug your children, that kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. And that's not feasible. And it's not a one size fits all type of answer. It's kind of a, it's sometimes much easier to answer the scientific questions on the virus than it is to answer these questions, because those I can rattle off the answers and, and not hem and haw when, when you ask me uh, questions about the, the RNA of the virus. But uh, this is a lot much harder to deal with. Right. Well, it's all about trade-offs. I feel like you keep reckoning with that and recognizing it, which I really appreciate because sometimes when people talk about this, they only focus on the science and the public health consequences of the virus, which I understand because we're all focused on it. But there are all these other elements of our world and our life that are it's a constant balancing. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of modelers do come up with great predictions and but then they're looking at a computer model and not realizing that those people those are like people's lives and it just gets a little bit difficult to for me when when the models have such they, they have such influence on people rightly so 
because it kind of gives you the best idea of a prediction, but you have to remember that they're, that it's, it's a model, but then you have to translate that model into practice. And then, then those are real decisions that affect people, uh, in their real, in their real life, not a simulated, not a simulated city that you're using in a model. Dr. Amesh Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for joining us. Go off and uh, do some good work here and try to help us get this done faster. All right. Thank you for having me. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It supports Slate's journalism, which is really good at this time and, and supports the work we're doing here on the GabFest. So consider becoming a member today. Uh, I got a surprise. It might be a boring surprise, but it's a surprise in, in the Slate Plus segment. So just listen. We're going to see how it works. The economy is broken, frozen, completely screwed. We are joined by Neil Irwin, the senior economics correspondent of the New York Times, who is going to tell us how to save it. He's got 17 plans. He's all ready. It's all teed up. Neil, you had a great story about why the economic collapse that's being caused by this pandemic is so different than what we've seen in previous economic crises, particularly in post 9-11 and in the Great Recession following the financial crisis. Why is it different? What does it makes it what makes it different? So what's happening is the economy, large chunks of it anyway, are coming to a standing stop. Um, you know, what what an economy is, is you produce things and you sell them to others, other people buy those things that then, uh, you know, gives them the things they need. It's a, it's a kind of circular system that that works in an ongoing way forever and ever. Um, and what's happening with this is a huge chunk of that, anything involving restaurants, leisure, hospitality, travel, uh, who knows how far it reaches, is just shutting down all at once. So you're looking at millions of people uh, losing ultimately their income, their ability to uh, kind of product, you know, be part of that productive um, system. And we've just never seen anything like that. I mean, I looked at the numbers after 9-11, and yeah, restaurants had a slump in business, but it was like 2%. Uh, we're looking at something much bigger than that. I, so I find this part of the story kind of more terrifying, maybe because it just feels so unknown, but also the tentacles are reaching out and seem seeming to affect just so many people. Does the government have the tools to keep everyone afloat while this crisis plays itself out? It potentially does, but I think uh, there's in Washington, everyone has been thinking too small for too long. It's it's nobody's quite gotten their heads around just how big this is. Uh, this is a United States is a twenty trillion dollar economy. If you assume something like fifteen twenty percent of it is going to have to just shut down, and that's the scale we're talking about. Um, I mean, you can run the math. That's something like four trillion dollars a year. Do we think it's six months? Do we think it's three months? You can do the math, um, but we're talking massive amounts of money. We're talking about uh, the federal government backstopping. A tremendous range of industries, individuals' incomes on a scale that we really haven't seen. It makes the, the 2008 bailout seem like child's play. And, you know, trying to both get your head around how big this needs to be, get your head around how to actually execute it, how to try and get money into the hands of individuals and businesses so they can keep operating, and, you know, accepting that the government will end up taking on a lot of risk and more debt in order to do that is something that, that everybody's kind of slow to come around to. Neil, uh, what was the fiscal and monetary picture going into this and how many tools were available 
or were not available because of the the conditions going into it? And then secondly, do you have a scale of structural damage that could be done? So if we think of the analogy of personal illness, you get sick, you're off work for two weeks, but then your body comes back and you're able to, you know, lift that bale and tote that barge or tote that bale and lift that barge. But you're able to go back. Does the economy, whenever this ends, have long-term structural damage or could it go back and 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 kind of go to where it was before? So on that second point, um, that's that's a choice that we have to make as a society, right? So it is totally plausible that this lasts for X months and then after X months, we go back to the status quo ex ante and um, businesses that were shuttered for a while reopen and uh, you know everything keeps churning again, the airlines start flying again, the hotels get full again, normal stuff starts happening. Uh, and that's the optimistic scenario. I think the question is, are we going to not have an adequate policy response? And will that result in a bunch of major industries collapsing or falling apart in ways that will take way longer to, to repair? But it's a much different situation if uh, a restaurant down the street from me, right? They're shut down right now. They're not, um, they're not operating. They have $0 in revenue. Um, if they're able to like get forbearance on their rent and uh, their employees get enough uh, kind of help to, to get through this period, uh, they're, you know, if they owe money to the bank, the bank gives them forbearance. Three months later, they can reopen, hire the same people back, everything's fine. If on the other hand, they get foreclosed upon, they get, go bankrupt, suddenly that restaurant ceases to exist. Suddenly it is no longer there to go back into business. And it's a much longer, more difficult process for the entire economy of rebuilding the capacity we once had. So that's, uh, that's the choice that's going to be made in Washington as these stimulus bills go forward. Um, how do they try and address the idea that millions of businesses around the country are facing choices and trade-offs like that and and help make sure that we can have that V-shaped kind of bounce back after this is over? So, uh, Neil, your colleague, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and then I saw this in AEI, and it may have been the, the same, they may have been drawing on the same source, or maybe I, I didn't notice that Sorkin had drawn on this AEI. But there's a very grand idea, which is essentially the federal government should agree to backstop every business in the country and say, if you retain your retain your workforce, we will give you a loan, a no interest loan to retain your workforce and pay you for some period of time. And we're just going to do that. And it's going to be an enormous amount of debt that we're going to take on for the federal government. But that's what's going to happen. Is that an idea, A, that you think makes sense? or And B, has any possibility of of going forward in this Congress and with this president? So that is the sort of idea that is on the scale of addressing what we're talking about here. And, uh, you know, and the fact that you're seeing that coming out of conservatives and centrists is, is telling you something, right? That, um, that, that people with AEI would, would, would embrace something like that. But that's the scale of what we're looking at. Um, so AEI is the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank. And so then when you were talking about people in the center and the right coming to this decision, that's just to sort of give that context. It is. And, uh, you know, would Congress do it? Well, you know, I would have said no a week ago, but things have been moving very, very quickly. And I think we are starting to see Congress and lawmakers and the Trump administration get their heads around just how big this is. Everybody's been a couple of steps behind as as it's become clearer to, to some of us who follow the stuff really closely how bad this might become. But I think there's finally a kind of catching up starting to happen. Um, I, it, you know, it's I, I, I'm hesitant to try and handicap the politics because it's just moves so fast that whatever I say now might look different in 24 hours. Um, but I'm a little more optimistic about Congress and the Trump administration really taking this seriously and being willing to deploy trillions of dollars 
than I was even 48 hours ago. To me, that just sounds so sensible that you would basically just try to backstop everything and hold it in place while we churn through this. And then afterward, like we're all still here. We all still have the same um, needs and desires we had before. So if the money was still available and flowing, it seems like it could come back. When you look at the current package that Congress is talking about, $500 billion, I think, being mailed in checks to American individuals, and then $500 billion for businesses, does that seem to be on the scale? Or do you feel like that's going to seem very partial and incomplete? I'm gonna, uh, sorry, I'm going to add one more question, which is, how should we think about the um, the calculus of saving small businesses, which to, I think, to, at least to me, seems so deserving versus the bailouts to the big industries that we all or many of us, I think, have kind of resentment toward from the 2008-2009 bailout. Senators like Elizabeth Warren have been talking about attaching strings do those kinds of conditions make sense for that segment of industry? It's so it's tricky. So um, getting at small businesses, that r- hypothetical restaurant or the restaurant down the street I mentioned earlier, um, making sure that restaurant that employs 50 people can get access to these programs or, or, or however it's actually structured is really desirable, but it's really hard, right? It's one thing to to you know, do a transaction. So, for example, big companies borrow money on the bond market. They they issue what's called commercial paper to borrow, borrow short term money or, or corporate bonds. Um, the Federal Reserve can do a lot of stuff to try and make bond markets. Which they started better, doing, right? Which they which they've started doing this week in a big big way. Uh, the little restaurant down the street does not uh, go to the bond market. They go to their local bank, and if their bank is, uh, you know, they can get a small business administration loan. There are tools out there. Uh, I think how the government deploys them, how quickly, on what scale is the open question. Uh, and, I, and I think to your point, like uh, on, on kind of strings attached, this is different from 2008 in this regard. The 2008 uh, banking crisis, financial crisis, the banks had culpability, right? So Bear Stearns and uh, Bank of America and Citigroup, uh, they had been contributing to these forces that led the economy to unravel. Uh, here, there's no culpability, right? It's it's not the airline's fault that nobody is allowed to fly right now. It's not the hotel's fault. It's not the restaurant's fault. So I think um, the case for having strict strings attached is a, a lot more questionable than it was then. Um, that said, I, I understand where Elizabeth Warren's coming from, right? Like if you're going to make trillions of dollars available to to American business, uh, it might you might want to have some some strings attached. And so, I, you know, we saw in 2008 how toxic the politics becomes when you're deploying vast amounts of money to private industry and private entities, the fact that this is not a moral hazard issue, this is not something where it's, it's the restaurants and airlines and hotels fault does change the equation a little bit. And it does slow the policy response. Um, while everybody argues over whether these are good or bad limits to put on the rescue. And then people try to put those kinds of limits on other <clears throat> groups being bailed out. So it does, it, if, if the idea is get the buckets in the brigade as fast as possible, that would seem to slow it down. Can I ask about, uh, you know, interest rates were already pretty low. In Europe, they were, you know, there's negative interest rates. How did the existing underlying economic conditions help or hurt in our thoughts about policy response? So the good part of that is that the economy was strong. We were at three and a half percent unemployment uh, as of three weeks ago. Um, I, this is all such a blur. I, I can't even. My time references are not quite right. But yes, we're, we're you know strong labor market. Um, 
but as you're suggesting, the, the downside was uh, we had we were at very low interest rates already. Uh, federal deficits were already quite large, so that does create some more sticker shock. First of all, the Fed can they've cut rates to zero. They're doing quantitative easing, you know, pushing hundreds of billions of dollars into the financial system. Um, they do not have the toolkit that they had in 2008 in the sense that uh, they just had less room to work with. Um, Congress, look, interest rates are so low, there's no reason Congress can't uh, spend a lot of money and, and you know have very large deficits. But I understand how there could be sticker shock when we're already running a trillion dollar a year deficit. And um, that's kind of a choice that we made with, with the Trump tax cuts, with um, you, you know spending policies. Uh, but that is a situation where we're going to have a truly jaw-dropping federal deficit this year. Neil, we watch the stock market. I'm sorry. Because I think we're, <laughs> we're not trained to watch anything else. And it's it clearly is, you know, it agitates people. And lots of people don't have any money or not significant amount of money in the stock market, but if those people who do can get agitated by it, but it is the it is the metric that people are trained to watch because that's the thing that is crammed down their throat every day. Is there something else that we could watch that would be useful as an indicator of economic health during this besides the stock market? Um, sure. So I think the the most important thing right now is. Uh, monitoring what happens in, in the bond market. So the U.S. government borrows money by issuing bonds. Those trade on the open market. And so the price they're trading at tells you something about um, kind of risk appetite and, and what investors think the future is. But in the last week or two, uh, the, the debt markets, the bond markets have become completely dysfunctional. And so even though the Fed's been cutting rates and throwing money at this and doing everything they can to lower interest rates, lower the cost of, of capital in the economy, interest rates have actually risen, which is uh, really problematic. Um, and so that makes it more expensive for the U.S. government to borrow money, but it's also uh, spreading out to other types of markets, so corporate debt markets, municipal bonds. So what that means is if you're a state or local government, you're about to have tremendous burdens, You know, your tax revenue is about to fall, and you're about to have tremendous expenses to try and help people get through this. Uh, but your cost of borrowing money has skyrocketed in the last week and a half. Um, that's very problematic. I expect the Fed and the, the administration will try and do some things to fix that. Same on corporate bonds. You know, this is a great time if you're a big company to uh, you know issue some debt and borrow money to help ride out this period. You you know business is going to come back. You might need some extra liquidity, some extra cash to get through this. Um, right now, the cost of that is through the roof. You might not be able to issue more debt at all. So I think right now the question, uh, the stock market's kind of the, the, the tail being wagged, not the, not the dog. And right now the, the debt markets are the dog, uh, and they really are a dog right now. Uh, so seeing those things heal is what the Fed's trying to do. That's what we really need to see if we're going to get out of this without a, a really severe episode. And is the bond market reacting that way because it just thinks the, wor- the future is going to be worse than everybody's saying? So that was the narrative about two weeks ago. So what was happening is yields, the interest rate of, on bonds was, was plunging um, through about, uh, about two weeks ago. Um, what's happened since then is now there's uh, a liquidity squeeze. There's a cash crunch. So all kinds of businesses around the world 
need dollars. They need cash. So they're drawing down their lines of credit. They're hoarding cash. Nobody has any money to kind of put into these markets right now. That's what the Fed's trying to counteract. They'll probably, they're already doing $700 billion in quantitative easing. They'll probably do more. The Fed is trying to fight this, but, uh, but right now, you know, this is a very, this is very much a repeat of 2008. Everybody's hoarding their cash. That means money's not flowing around to the places it's needed in the economy. I'm going to ask a really, I know this is a dumb question. Why can't we just free, make the market stop? Like, why can't we just cancel them, hold them in position while we figure all of this out? Just like take a big pause. I mean, there's been some discussion of that, um, you know, shutting down the stock market and, and shutting down trading for a week and let everybody kind of get a grip on exactly what's happening. I mean, there are some reasons you maybe don't want to do that. Uh, you know, these are markets where everybody's kind of raising money and, and, and these are crucial to funding everything that happens in, in the world. And you don't uh, and you want to keep those markets open for that reason. Um, and, and, you know, again, the, the, the problems we're seeing in both the stock market, the, the debt markets, those are not the cause of this crisis. They are a result of the crisis. And, um, you know, shutting things down may not actually give us more information about how to get out of this. Um, and it may actually kind of hide what we need to understand. You know, I, I truly do think the, the stock market dropping uh, is what got a lot of people's attention over the last few weeks. Um, you know, when it was just a bunch of public health nerds saying, oh, this is going to be a disaster. Many people are going to die. We need to radically, you know, rethink how we, how we you know, work with each other. Um, it was easy to ignore when the stock market's down 20%. It's harder to ignore. Neil Irwin is the senior economics correspondent for the times, the New York times. That is Neil. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. David. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right. Um... So we've had two guests and we're about to have another guest, but uh, it's just it's just the three of us here. What um, how are you guys feeling? How, how are you feeling having listened to that alarming public health news and that alarming economic news? Like what what is your state of mind? I feel so upset and worried for small businesses right now. I mean, people just pour their lives into into those businesses and the idea that it's harder to help them and then that works against them 
just makes me really upset. Yeah, and the idea usually is, well, you you work harder, you sleep less, you you have there's some buttons you can push to uh, try to change your circumstances, and in this case, there none of those normal things exist. And even the salves that you self-administer to get you through those tough times are, uh, you know, are not working in this instance when when we hear, you know, that this might be with us for a very long period of time. Uh, and I'm thinking in terms of the small businesses, you know, but until we get back to normal behavior, uh, that would that would uh, bring customers through the door. I just don't see how we get through this without something like what Sorkin described, Andrew Ross Sorkin describes in The Times, with every business essentially getting a bailout, a getting a float, a, not a just lift. Being it's, a, it's a float, just so that everyone can stay employed. Because we're going to have to. It's a, it's it's not like these businesses are going to go out of business and there's somebody waiting there to replace it. There's nobody. If you foreclose on this business, this restaurant, it's not like there's another restaurant that's ready to jump right. in. It's right. not because nobody can do anything right now. And so the idea that we would just be like, oh, this is the market telling everybody they have to shut down is nonsense. These are these are places that need. We society has been frozen. We are frozen, for, whether it's for a month or for six months, we don't know. And that means that the government has to step in and 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 the best way to step in is sort of say, well, we're going to we're going to try to restore more or less as much as what we can from what was before the disaster, after the disaster. And, you know, some of those things, like some things won't be able to survive. Some things are just not going to make it. We have to accept that. And there'll be fraud and and so forth. But but the idea that we're going to let all these things go under uh, doesn't make sense. And sending people a thousand dollar check now doesn't make sense because people aren't going to spend it. They don't have a place to spend it. It's not that's not what works. What works will be knowing you have a job to go to. Although that's what people need. Although the thousand dollars, I mean, I partially agree, but part of it also is just letting people, you know, letting their bank accounts have a little bit more space so they're not as emotionally yes. terrified. Also, the gig but, economy people might really need that money. Like the people who are just losing yes. their tips. No. In there. no. For sure, I didn't mean don't. I didn't mean don't do that. I just meant I just it's meant that cool. there's this other this other piece, which is this huge category of businesses and their employees that need to be supported. I'm also not sure that, like, if you if you do this kind of save of all the businesses, whether the gig economy people are helped at all from that, right? Because they're not employees. So maybe they get the checks. Do what do you guys think about like just I'm the thing I'm. Uh, fixated on is this social distancing and how long we can maintain a world in which we don't interact and don't like congregate in any fashion and don't engage in commerce and don't engage in most of our economic activity and most of our work activity or much of our work activity. So I don't think it's sustainable. And I, it leads me to a like kind of panicked, cold-hearted place to think about that because we're supposed to be focused on saving people's lives right now, but there's just this enormous just dislocation and cost to doing that. And I think it's fair to take that into account, especially as time goes on. Like 15 days, yes, I think we can do that. I think we can do longer than that, but a year and a half is not possible. And so at some point we have to recalibrate how we think about those competing costs. I don't know how to do that, um, but, but at some Emily, point we have to talk you, about that. But you were saying you were making this point just off mic a, a few minutes ago. This is in a huge wealth transfer 
to just make that point again and because it's it's a really it's a, I hadn't thought about it that way and it's such a good Well, I was insight. just thinking about kids last night. My kids, everybody's kids, and we are for the sake of saving lives, many of those lives are older people's lives. We are imposing a gargantuan cost on younger generations right now. I mean, one way to think about this is just this massive transfer of wealth and well-being from young people to older people. And some of that may be worthwhile as a way of saving lives. I mean, I totally understand the focus on making sure the hospitals um, have capacity because that's horrifying. I mean, these stories out of Italy about people dying alone in the hospital and the coffin stacking up, like that is completely chilling. And yet at some point, like younger generations have to be able to be well and live and thrive too. And I guess one thing... We all die alone. We all die alone. I'm just saying it's... Wait, even if you die in a room with it, you die alone. So just FYI, just want to note that. Wait, wait, that seems that seems important, but uh, but adjacent. Well, no, I'm just saying that that. that I, sorry to interrupt you, Emily. I, I, just this idea: people, everyone is going to die, and the idea that we're preserving life, people, an extra year or two of life for people. Of course, you want to do that. If it, especially you want to do it if it's at no cost or minimal cost. But the idea that we would do that at the cost to all of us seems really wrong. Well, it depends well, what that cost is and how high it is, right? right? And I think what we're looking at is increasing awareness that that cost just could just be huge and kind of incalculable. And there's some moment at which, like, we're going to have to rethink that. And I don't know what it is. I mean, part of what's so hard about this is that right now the number of deaths is relatively low. And so at least for me, even though rationally I understand the risk, I see the rising numbers and the fear, and I see the stories out of Italy and China, and they're upsetting. There's also just this feeling of like, well, wait a second. Well, what do you mean, well, well wait a second? Well, like how... How long can this utter dislocation go on? And and how, if we, I mean, I guess it's this catch-22. If we prevent the worst from happening, which we're hoping we'll do, like, and yet we've imposed all these other terrible costs on ourselves collectively, like, then what? Is there a moment where we kind of change how we think about the the cost-benefit analysis? Well, if 40% of the people who've been hospitalized, according to the CDC, are between 25 and or between 20 and 54, if we stop doing the behavior, then it's not just then. I mean, you're talking about we can lower the safeguards, but but it's not going to get better if everybody over if if it's affecting everybody over age 25. I mean, but the people course, dying you know, are the older people, right? I mean, I don't mean to sound right, like I don't people, care about them because they do. But yes, the people. But if you're hospitalized, if forty percent of the people you're hospitalizing are our age or younger, presumably, if they're not being hospitalized, they're going to have a uh, less good chance of staying alive. Um, yes. 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 You, yes. People are going to die, but absolutely. I, I do, I'm not. I'm not of the. I'm certainly not yet at the place which is like, oh, we have to stop social distancing. But Me I mean, it's been no time at all. But I, I think this point about the trade-offs that Dr. Adalja made is so important because a, that when you take away people's livelihood and work, they become less healthy, and so we're imposing economic, uh, we're imposing health costs on people down the road. 
when kids don't get an education, they become less healthy, they're less productive, society is less rich. That's a cost down the road. When you don't do necessary other medical research, uh, that imposes a cost. That's a, that's a health cost down the road, lives lost later on. When you isolate people, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. When you are isolated, you are unhappier, your immune system's down, you are more depressed, you are you are more likely to get sick yourself. You're more likely to be vulnerable to sickness. Uh, it, ironically, uh, and so and so the idea that it's that 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 it's simply a matter of controlling this one this one variable, which is this t- absolutely terrible disease that is ravaging us, not correct. It is this huge multivariate thing that we have to think about and we don't yet have you know perfect information or even good information to be able to make those decisions and that's what's so frustrating is to live to that uncertainty is terrible to live in i mean we'll know a lot more pretty quickly right and i think like i'm not sure we will really well i mean our testing numbers are awfully awfully low and they don't seem to be getting any better but what um, really matters is like how many people are going to the hospital getting super sick and dying like that's just going to Ha- unfold in front of us, right? No matter. Well, maybe. Uh, but if those numbers are low, then w- w- because of the lack of information, the question is whether what's how did that how did that why did that take place? Is it because the social distancing worked? Is it because it wasn't as bad as we thought? Is it we we won't know? So let's say people don't die, and then behaviors change based on the wrong conclusion. Then we're right back in the soup again. You know, we haven't talked yeah, about politics I, at all on this political show. It's so political, crazy. Like we're capital. just thinking of the government <laughs> as uh, not as you know made up of individuals or Democrats and Republicans right now, which is of course wrong because people are certainly acting in partisan fashion. Um, but it's kind of comforting to imagine that you can ignore that for a little bit. Well, I I really. I don't want to do this now because it would be a much longer discussion. I really want to talk about that question in next week, maybe our next episode. Yeah. Because I, th- I'm wondering, you know, when you start to see the, I mean, if the, if the Republicans in Congress or the Democrats choose not to be as ambitious as Neil Irwin proposed, they be, um, it's going to be a real, it's going to be a really interesting totally issue. Agree. And I, I, I can't wait to dig into that you know, find out where people's principles are. They're, they're that principle, whether in the, the moment of this emergency, we recognize that only there's only one thing that can possibly lift us, you know, which is the might of us together, which is the federal government. And, and there's the financial response and, and there's been no national, um, you know, Norman Schwarzkopf, who in the middle of the first, you know, Gulf war was, a was a stable voice of, of, um, uh, information about what was going on. And that's another big, huge deficit we have in the moment is there's nobody who, when they come on the television, everybody says, wait, be quiet. I want to hear, hear what person X has to say, with the exception of maybe of, of Anthony Fauci. Well, we're going to talk to our next guest, but we'll we'll process talk a lot more about this. We'll be still processing next week. We're joined by one of my favorite journalist, a writer I admire unreservedly, John Mualem. John has written a book that is out this month that is one of the most satisfying books I've read in a very long time. It's also a shockingly timely book. The book is called This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City. 
and it is the story of the 1964 Great Alaska Earthquake, which I think is the second most powerful earthquake ever and the most powerful earthquake in the United States, although John will correct me. And it devastated the city of Anchorage. And the book is about what happened when the city of Anchorage was devastated and how that city survived. It's a gorgeous book and a weird book, and it's inspiring as heck right now. So, John, this is not going to be, I think, the usual author interview in the sense that we're in a very different moment. So I'm not sure we're going to spend that much time exactly on the details of your book and more on some of the implications of it. But uh, so first, I'm going to recommend the book unreservedly. Um, but why don't you start by telling us the about the disaster that overtook Anchorage in 1964 and, and the response to it? Yeah, well, thanks for that introduction. Um, the The earthquake that in Alaska, this was in 1964, it happened on Good Friday, uh, just as the sun was going down. The magnitude was ultimately measured at 9.2, and uh, which is you know pretty astonishing. And what what makes it even more surreal, I think, is that it it lasted for about four and a half minutes within the city of Anchorage. So I like to describe that as. If you played uh, the Stevie Wonder song, I just called to say I love you, you'd, you'd still have 10 seconds of shaking left after the song was over. And that was what really captured my imagination at first is just the surreality of that experience, especially for Anchorage at the time, because this was only five years after Alaska had become a state. And Anchorage was sort of the only community in, in Alaska that would even really qualify as a, as a city by some standards. And it, it saw itself as this metropolis, this uh, frontier town that was fulfilling this promise of what Alaska could be. Uh, so to be disrupted and uh, overturned by this by this giant disaster at that time um, had all kinds of implications, I think, just for the psychology and this civic sense of identity for the town. So, John, one of the heroes of your book is a local news reporter named Jeannie Chance. And I've been thinking about her character in our current predicament. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you focused on her and what lessons her response to the earthquake has for us in our different and yet also calamitous time. Yeah, well, Jeannie was um, actually just a part-time news reporter at, at this local Anchorage radio station, KENI. Uh, she was sort of half a radio reporter, half a mother with, with three small children at the time. And she ended up being one of these people that's often, you know, you often see these, these cases in emergencies like this where someone kind of rises to the surface as, as fulfilling an important and, and improbable role. Through a, almost a quirk of, of luck and also her own uh, persistence, uh, she wound up sort of in the center of the action uh, right after the quake downtown. And so when the station was able to get back on the air, uh, she had all of this information that, that no one else really had. She had seen a lot uh, on her own, and she was also positioned at the city's police station. So she began broadcasting from there, and then through the, uh, the hard work and ingenuity of the engineers at the station, they were actually able to get her broadcasting from in the police station. And she stayed there all weekend. Uh, and became this voice that could first just get information out, uh, get requests from city officials, you know, we need more diesel fuel over here, we need a doctor over here, and also just communicate to the city what had just happened to them. Because the sun set shortly after the quake, the phone lines were out, there just was no way for a lot of people to know how severely 
their town had just been scrambled. Uh, people were missing family members. People did not know if the neighborhood they were in was the worst hit or the, the one that had survived the best. And it took a central narrator with access to the entire community over the air to help everyone piece those things together. John, the thing that drew me to your book is really what happened to the people of Anchorage in the wake of disaster. And you have really vivid writing. It's a really well-studied disaster. You talk about the sociologists who came out from, from lower 48 to study how people were responding. But what you found seemed to be that that in the one sense, there's this amazing line where you quoting somebody saying life becomes molten metal, old customs crumble and instability rules where everything that had been there and seemed so stable is gone. And then also so many people seem to have found a sense of meaning and purpose and even happiness in the wake of the disaster. And I would like you to talk about that and talk about as you're looking at what's happening with this pandemic, what lessons that teaches us. Yeah, I mean, because the book uh, is really just an attempt to tell the story of these first three days, this Easter weekend in Anchorage, um, that's really the moment after a disaster, this immediate aftermath, or what sociologists call the emergency period, where you see that kind of cohesion and collaboration and altruism most clearly. Uh, you see people, you know, from the very specific, you know, someone is standing in front of a building where the facade falls and they immediately rush toward the rubble to try to dig out people. Uh, people who were searching through collapsed buildings. Uh, there was a whole group of uh, kind of hobbyist mountaineers in Anchorage who would get together on weekends and just practice avalanche rescues just for fun, just to kind of keep their skills sharp. And they sprung into action and actually wound up running the entire city's search and rescue operation because they were more qualified to do that than the fire department. The fire department, a municipal fire department, doesn't know about, uh, you know, necessarily to the same degree, but searching through a, a collapsed uh, environment. Uh, so you had this, all of this energy of people helping, and not just helping, but banding together to form these ad hoc groups that could organize and, and help in very productive ways. And that kind of uprising, I call it in the book, a, a, like a civic immune response, kicks in right away and then keeps developing over time. Now, looking at all the firsthand accounts that I was able to collect for the book, it was impossible not to recognize these on an anecdotal level. And then what happened, you know, I was very lucky that what happened in, in, in reality was these sociologists arrive the evening after the quake, and they're coming from Ohio State University from a place called the Disaster Research Center, which is set up to study natural disasters by uh, the Pentagon as proxies for nuclear war. And they're expecting to document chaos and this devolution of society. But instead, they see the opposite. They see people working together. They see civilians being part of the, the solution instead of part of the problem. So I think we're, we're all starting to recognize that now. It's the, the strangeness of coronavirus is that all of that um, energy, that impulse that we have to help is being refracted through this you know, very bizarre kind of disaster where we're also supposed to be keeping our distance from one another. So the helping uh, looks a little scrambled. I think it's, it's hard for some of us to even feel like we're doing anything productive because we're staying home. But I think it's important to recognize that 
a lot of what we're thinking of as the, you know, the, the slow unraveling of society right now or the cancellation of things, the, the retreat, it's not, uh, it's not defense. We're, we're playing offense, right? It's that same thing. We just don't have the luxury of seeing a concrete problem like a bit of concrete rubble that's landed on a car and rushing to it to help the driver out. Uh, we have to think a little more abstractly about, about how our energy is putting, being put to use. That makes a lot of sense to me. I also think, though, that the difference between the emergency response, the urgency of a three-day period versus the long slog that we're in is really difficult. And I wonder um, how you're thinking about that distinction. I confess, like, so much of my thinking is is jumbled right now. Things are changing so quickly. And I think it, what you just said is something that really didn't dawn on me until last night when I was reading about, you know, these bills that are going through the house right now um, in terms of, you know, uh, tr just helping people prop themselves up economically right now. And I think it's, I'd be really curious actually to ask some of the sociologists that I, that I interviewed to, to speak specifically about that, because now you have not just this emergency period, but what they call the recovery period, that, uh, which, which comes afterwards, when the nature of the disaster is plain, the extent of the damage is plain, and society has to go about picking itself up. And that's traditionally, in the research, uh, a pretty tense period, because now you have this sense of um, togetherness begins to, to uh, fray when people uh, start seeing, you know, who's getting what and how the problems are being addressed, um, inequities come uh, up to the surface. And in those periods, actually, what you see in the literature is that uh, exactly the opposite, that existing uh, divisions in a society can actually get greater. Uh, so I, I, all that to say, I guess that's just something we should all be keeping our, our eyes on, because obviously in a, in a crisis like this, like David was saying before, this, this sense of life becoming molten metal, there's great opportunity to recognize the, the flaws in a system and actually carry lessons from this forward and, and try to fuse us back together in a more equitable way. So, John, the, the question is, in both time periods you discuss, the, the cohesion that was created during the emergency period where did that come from other than the obvious places? We're all human beings and we want to rush to the, to help other human beings. But I mean, was there a, uh, was there a religious component? Was there a frontier, uh, sense of self component that, that created this original glue? And then during the recovery period, when there are these forces that create, um, either division or exacerbate existing division, who was sewing up the wrens in the garment to, um, try to hold everyone together, because um, you could imagine looking for that person in this current instance and not really knowing exactly who would be wielding the needle and thread. Yeah, it was interesting just even the way you you asked the first part of that question, John, because it really mirrors like a lot of the way people were were talking about it immediately immediately afterward. There, it really does seem to be as simple as we're, we're all human. You know, there's not a real intellectual answer for why when people were asked. You know, why did you do this? This was one of the, the most fascinating things about reading the transcripts of these sociologists' interview. They, they came to Alaska, they did uh, close to 500 interviews with individual people that were literally just TikToks. Tell me everything that happened from the moment the shaking started, right? And you see the sociologists uh, just clamoring for some sense of uh, logic or, you know, who told you to do that? Why did you choose to do X when you could have done Y? 
And the Alaskans are basically just flummoxed, you know, and they're saying, well, what, what was I going to do, you know? Uh, and then, and then the, the more uh, they, they hit that dead end, then these questions of, well, was it something uh, spiritual? Was it something about the nature of Alaskans as a people? And you start to get a lot of very, um, you know, esoteric philosophical uh, explanations that in a sense don't really hold up. There's a moment in the book where I describe... Uh, a psychology professor at the local uh, university in, in Anchorage, a very small university there, who winds up running this search and rescue task force uh, in the moment, just because he walks in off the street at the police station, and he has a lot of experience doing these mountain rescues. And he's holding forth and saying, you know, there's uh, this egalitarian society in Anchorage, and we all look at each other as equals to begin with, and this pioneer spirit, and he's going on and on, and you know, all of which is true. Uh, but the sociologists eventually make the point of saying that even that belief in a community's own exceptionalism in these times of disaster turns out to be the most unexceptional feature of these disasters, that the instinct is always to say, uh, well, yes, society does break down in these moments of crisis, but not our society because we're just stronger or kinder or better equipped somehow. Um, and you see that, you know, I was in New York at 9-11, you saw that there, you know, we're just New Yorkers being New Yorkers or, you know, New Orleanians being New Orleanians after Katrina. And that's not to take away the, you know, the individual kind of joyous uh, characteristics of a particular community. Everyone's going to respond slightly differently. You know, in Alaska, you had people rushing in to help. In most of these situations, you have people rushing in to help. In Alaska, they rush in to help with their own bulldozers sometimes. You know, that's not going to happen in Manhattan. But the point is, is that they always rush in to help. So it just sort of flattens the whole uh, equation down to something as simple as it's just kind of what we do. John Mualem has a new book. This is Chance. It is the book to read right now if you want to, A, feel better about what we're facing and B, just have an immensely satisfying and thoughtful distraction. Uh, John, good luck out there. You're 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 in the woods so you're maybe you're uh further from virus than some other folks but uh but stay healthy and we'll talk to you soon thank you you too so man i you know i don't know whether it's a week to like start drinking heavily to stop drinking whatever it is it's certainly a week to gather and talk to the few people that we're able to talk to up close uh or to skype with so john if you're having a virtual happy hour across uh Cross Skype or Zoom or Google Hangout with with your friends and your tippling. What are you going to be telling us about? So my ch chatter is about uh, the Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It's by uh, John M. Barry, and um, it's I, so obviously people are reading this. I'm reading it because of the um, all the comparisons people are drawing to this. And I had forgotten the story that George W. Bush read this in 2005. And uh, after, in the, after he came back from the summer in which he read this, he went to Fran Townsend, who is his um, terrorism advisor uh, inside the White House, uh, Homeland Security advisor, and said, we've got to figure out something. If this happens to us again, we've got to have a plan. And that's how the Bush administration um, came up with its first pandemic plan, which it then handed off to the Obama administration. So in addition to being a great book, um, it also has that little role in history. Emily, what's your chatter? So I decided I could have two pieces of chatter because I wanted to say something serious, but I didn't want to only say something serious. My serious chatter is about the 
battle going on over coronavirus in the nation's jails and prisons. There are some counties and cities that are really doing their best to make sure there are as few people as possible in jail right now, given the risks. They're looking at the older prisoners who would be more vulnerable to the virus, and they're also looking at people charged with low-level offenses to see if um, they can be released. And what's really important about this is that once coronavirus is in a jail or prison, that place is like a cruise ship. Everybody there is going to be susceptible. There is already a guard at Rikers who has tested positive, and I'm sure that person is not the only staff member um, who's accidentally bringing the virus into jails and prisons. So Cuyahoga County in Ohio did this like mass plea bargain on a Saturday, a whole set of hearings last week. San Antonio has been looking at getting people out of jail. Philadelphia is starting to do that. Mayor de Blasio finally promised after a lot of pressure to do that in New York. But there are also jurisdictions where it's business as usual. I was talking to a public defender in New Orleans um, this week, and the district attorney in New Orleans actually filed a motion saying it was unsafe to let people out because they could be spreading the virus, essentially using that as a reason to keep them in jail, which is not legal, I would argue. So this is just really worth watching because the populations in jails and prisons are going to be so vulnerable. Um, on a happier note, I just started reading a book called The Body in Question. It's a novel by Jill Simmont that Curtis Sittenfeld, who we've had on our show before, um, she recommended this book to me, and it so far is great. So if you're looking for unrelated to virus reading material, The Body in Question by Jill Simmont. My chatter. It is hard to find any culture that doesn't somehow echo or speak to me today at least uh but i want to recommend two things quickly one is the book the guns of august which i just started reading barbara tuckman account of the beginning of world war one and it's just a beautifully written book it's one of the great popular histories ever written of anything um, but it's it it echoes today because it's all about these leaders in various countries in Europe making mistakes that would come and haunt them and would cost millions of lives. And in retrospect, it's so obvious what was happening. It's so obvious the mistakes that were being made. And we can look back from history and say, don't do it. You're about to destroy the civilization of Europe. And they didn't see it. And so it, it has a small echo. I'm not saying that our leaders today are doing the same things, but it, there's some ways in which it echoes. The other is that my kids have been watching this show on Netflix called The Circle, which is uh, everyone has talked about. It's one of these reality shows, but it's, it's, it is it's uh, social distancing. It's a show in which everyone is isolated from each other and they can simply communicate electronically and build relationships and jockey for position and influence within this community, this virtual community they've built. And so it's uh, it's a it's a terrible vision of society, but it is it is similar to the world that I feel that we've entered into. Listeners, you have also sent us chatters this week. Please keep them coming. Please send us more and more because God knows all of us can use some form of relief, respite, uh, distraction in a period of such uncertainty and and fear. And appreciate all the ones that you sent to us. And the one that spoke to me came from Trisha six one seven, and. It, it one of many similar kinds of videos that are out there. Uh, it says, start your day with a song of hope from the Chino Hills High School Chamber Singers. 
their concert was canceled because of COVID-19. So they did this instead. And it's a YouTube video. It's a linked up YouTube video of about 20 kids, each in their own different uh, YouTube box in their own little box. And their audio has been synced and they're uh, singing the, that great version of over the rainbow. Um, and it's beautiful. It's just beautiful and cheerful and, and lifts the spirit. So thank you, Trisha 617 for that. If you enjoyed the GabFest, please subscribe to us and you can get new episodes the second they're published. So we may even be publishing extra ones during the pandemic because we got, uh, there's so much to talk about and there's, there's so many different ways to talk about it. So maybe there'll be extra shows if you subscribe. That is the GabFest for today. We're produced by Jocelyn Frank. My God, Jocelyn did a job. Jocelyn, you have done such a number this week. It's unbelievable. A good job, just to be clear. Yeah. Such a number Unbe- could be bad, but that's not what you, know, you mean. The number, the number is 10. <laughs> <laughs> number is 10 out of 10. And our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, who has done same, same, but with small children. Oh, my gosh. I just like I am so appreciative of you guys. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest, and please do send chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. I hope you are doing well and are healthy and safe, and we will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Slate Puss. Slate Puss. Slate Puss. <laughs> That's really the last Jeez. thing we need this week. Yeah. To be calling people Puss. <laughs> the last. Hello, Slate Plus, I meant. Oh, my God. How are you? All right. So I, I, I built up with John and Emily. I just, I was like, I have an idea for Slate Plus. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is not a good idea. But anyway. <laughs> We've I just, arrived I, I at the just, moment, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was out for a walk. Uh, a, a very socially distant walk with a friend and and I was just I was thinking like this was almost like this moment it's it's it feels like we're in some like Arabian Nights or something where there's nothing but time to tell, tell stories it's a time just to tell stories and I was we were going to be out for a long walk and I was and I just had this thought which is like what's a really boring story you have What's a boring thing that you think about all the time? Like, let's let's just trade. Like, what's some super boring thing? It doesn't have to be a story, but some super boring thing that, you know, it just occupies you, even though you know it is so boring. And <laughs> and and it was actually really fun. <laughs> it was really fun to do that. Um, Maybe you should go so, first since you've already had yeah, practice go, go first. Yeah, 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 I, around think, you. Uh, I think this chatter may be itself self-realizing what you're asking <laughs> us to do. Uh, so, no, but it was fun. It was like a just, it was a way of like getting a human connection that was unexpected. All right, right, so stop I'll, I'll telling give the example. and start showing. I'll, I'll give the example I, I did, which is, um, John, you, you're a man, you shave. I don't shave that much anymore because I have a beard. But so when I was in college, uh, I was a college sophomore and I had three dear beloved roommates and one of them, I remember we were sitting around one day talking about how to shave. I think one of us was shaving. I think, I think Dan was shaving and Dan took an amount of shaving cream, like took a large amount of shaving cream and was lathering on his neck. And Aaron, uh, my, one of my other roommates goes, that's way too much shaving cream. Like that's, you don't need that much. You're just like wasting shaving cream. That's ridiculous. And so literally every time I have shaved since that day, I replay that conversation in my head. I'm like, do I have a Dan-sized blob of shaving cream or an Aaron-sized? And I don't even know which is correct. So it's, you know, 
what is it, 30 some years, 150 times a year. So so 5,000 times I have shaved. And every single time, this really boring conversation about the size of the glob of shaving cream you need has run through my head. That is a really good example. I know. I can't. And, I'm Now I feel, I feel worried about my own examples. <laughs> so it, what is the question here? Is the question here the most boring thing that's constantly in your head? Yeah. Yeah. That, because in a way, that story is, um, it's like a little personal tick for you. I mean, it's not a little thing you repeat to yourself or a song you hum, but it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a it's part like of your source ear, code. It's an earworm, though. It's like something you wish you had never encountered, so you would just be able to <laughs> shave in peace. The truth is, I actually have a second shaving one like that. I have which, a, I actually I, have I, a I shaving one too. Actually, I wonder if this this is interesting. I want because it, you don't do it when you comb your hair. Although I actually I have Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.